Good morning. Um, before I start, just want to let you know that the baptism class will be meeting at 10.30 in room 7. Um, so look for Pastor Brandon upstairs at 10.30. Um, I also wanted to just say good morning and welcome to all of you. And as Tina said, Pastor Eric will be returning from sabbatical this week. Um, you'll see him next Sunday. But I'm really happy about that because when Eric comes back, that means I can go to Atlanta. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing this week. And as most of you know, my daughter Tracy lives in Atlanta, along with her husband, and most importantly, with my two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, Emily. And I last saw Emily over the holidays. She was here. And she's just beginning to talk. So when we were at Brandon and Alyssa's house, she had told me that she wanted to go for a walk, and she told me to push the buggy, this doll carriage. And this doll carriage is kind of lopsided. It's kind of half-broken, and it's way too low for me, so I was kind of one-handing it. And I was also talking to someone as I was doing it, so I wasn't really paying attention, and Emily was not happy with me. And so she grabbed my other hand, put it on the handle, and she said, listen, Grammy, <laughs> which of course, is what her parents say to her when they want her to pay attention. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to them on FaceTime, and I was talking to my daughter, Tracy, probably longer than Emily wanted me to. So as soon as there was a lull in the conversation, she said, listen, Grammy, read books, which is one thing that we do when we're on FaceTime. And it's kind of fun to read online and to make sure the pictures are lining up with the camera. But it in no way compares to reading to her in person. We've all discovered this, that Zoom and FaceTime are wonderful for being able to be with people when you can't be together in the same room. But they don't at all compare to being in person with people, to feeling their actual presence. It's so much better to read with Emily sitting in my lap, you know, feeling her wiggly warmth, letting her open the flaps and turn the pages. The actual presence of another person is so much better than that distance. And God desires our actual presence too. God wants to be present with us more than distant, more than like on a FaceTime or a Zoom. God wants to bless us, for us to experience his warmth, his presence, his life-changing love. And he reaches out to us even when we're busy, when we're only half paying attention and multitasking. But God is always making a way for us to come into his presence and to receive his life-changing love. And today we're continuing our series, Jesus the King. And we'll be looking at God's desire to dwell among his people. Israel squandered and neglected God's presence. And in our passage today in Mark 11, we'll see a rare display of anger in Jesus at their neglect. They missed out on the presence of God but we can avoid making that same mistake. And we are going to look at Mark 11, which begins with Jesus entering the holy city on a donkey. It was the Passover season, and multitudes of travelers were coming into Jerusalem to worship and to offer sacrifices. And Jesus rode into the city on a donkey as the humble servant king in fulfillment of prophecy. People lined the roads and worshiped the king. They recognized who he was and what he was doing. They threw palm branches in front of him as a sign of their worship. And we celebrate this event today as Palm Sunday, 
a few days before Jesus was arrested, crucified, and died on the cross, and then rose again on Easter. But Mark 11 tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem, looked around, and then went back to his home base in Bethany a few miles away, and then the next day he returned to Jerusalem and went to the temple. And that's where we're going to pick up the story, in Mark 11, verse 12. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, you can read along with me in Mark 11, starting in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seen in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, and in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. The Gospel writer, Mark, puts these two stories together. Jesus cursed a fig tree because it had no fruit, and then he went to the temple, overturned tables, and then the next day the fig tree had withered and died. And the way the events in the temple are framed by the fig tree tells us that these two events are connected. They're meant to be two parts of one whole story. And as we will see as we dig deeper, Jesus condemns both the fig tree and the temple for the same offense. But the central focus of this story is the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was the focus of life in Israel, and it's also a connecting thread through all of Scripture. That thread began in the Garden of Eden with God's perfect presence, where Adam and Eve fully enjoyed the presence of God. The garden was, in the fullest and truest sense, God's dwelling place on earth. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from the garden and barred from ever returning by a flaming sword. No one could get back into the perfect presence of God without getting past that flaming sword. And the rest of scripture is about God reaching out to men and women to bring them back into his presence. After rescuing the Jews from slavery in Egypt, God instructed them to build an ark and a tabernacle so that he would have a dwelling place among them. And then later Solomon built the temple. And God gave Solomon detailed, specific instructions about how to build the temple. It was to be the dwelling place of God among his people, but it was limited and imperfect. People could only go so far, and only with the right sacrifices brought in the right way. Only the high priest could go beyond the veil to enter the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum where God's dwelling place was. It was always a reminder of the flaming sword and the sin that separated God from, holy from a holy God.
from sinful people. And the original temple built by Solomon was destroyed. And then a modest version was rebuilt after the exile, when the exiles returned from Babylon. But in Jesus' day, the temple had been rebuilt again by King Herod. And this is what the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. The temple building was surrounded by the court of the Gentiles, which in Mark 11 is called the temple courts. And this whole structure is called the Temple Mount, and it was huge. This whole structure is about the size of 29 football fields, and the temple courts could hold up to about 75,000 people. And during the week before Passover, it would have been full, crowded with activity and people and all kinds of things going on. The court of the Gentiles was the only place where non-Jews could approach the presence of God. It's the only place they were allowed to worship and pray. But Jesus quoted Isaiah and said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And for all nations meant for the Gentiles, for the Jews, that Jesus was going to make a way for non-Jews to be in the actual presence of God. Jesus said, my house. This is his house. He was king. And this is his house. And he was going to make a way for all people to come into God's presence. Jesus would get past the flaming sword by taking the sword on himself when he died on the cross. But at this time, the temple courts were noisy and chaotic. It was the only place for non-Jews to seek God. But imagine trying to do that in a busy marketplace full of shops and tables and merchants and money changers. They all offered an essential service to pilgrims who came to worship people who had traveled long distances and needed to purchase animals and wine and oil and the supplies for their sacrifice. Money, money was changed. Temple taxes were paid. The priests received a cut of the temple taxes. It could have provided a needed service for people. But it had become profit-driven commercialism with shady business practices, inflated taxes and prices, exploiting the poor. And Jesus quoted Jeremiah when he, Jeremiah's judgment against Israel, calling it a den of robbers. The temple was the dwelling place of God, but it had become broken, corrupt. The system didn't work anymore. It was supposed to be a place for worshipers to come into the presence of God, but it was just a place of business, exploitation, injustice. It was empty of true worship and prayer. It was empty of real love for God and people. It was full of activity with no heart for God and people. All activity and no heart. And this should convict us because we can often be people with a lot of activity, busy, doing things, and forget to have a heart for God and people. We are all susceptible to this. We're good at activity, at doing things. Doing things for us, doing things for God, being busy. We do good things. We attend church, we serve, we give, we help. But a lot of times, we forget about God. The doing things makes us feel good. It makes us feel productive. And we can do it because it's the right thing to do, because we're supposed to do it, because it makes us feel good because it looks good, and we like being seen doing good things. 
Sometimes we even feel a little resentful if nobody notices what we do. We can forget about God, go through the motions of worship, and forget about having a heart for God and his people. We can be full of activity. I don't really like sitting in the front row. I would much rather be sitting against the wall. But we're supposed to sit in the front so you can see us. <laughs> but I like sitting in the back. Sometimes when I have things to do, I sit in the back. But sitting in the front actually does help me focus a lot better. I pay attention more. I like the feel of worshiping, being right up here where the drums are and to feel it in my body. But when I sit in the back, it's easy for me to look around and see who's here. Think about who I'm gonna talk to after service. I look out the door and see what's going on outside. And it's easy for all of us to think about other things. We can be here in church and not really worship God at all. Some Sundays, I get really focused on the activity of church. And I think of all the things, I have this agenda of things to do. And God often interrupts me and turns my heart and mind back to people and to him. A few years ago, or maybe several years ago, one Sunday I was talking to someone, and she turned and looked behind her and then looked at me and said, are you okay? Are you looking for someone? And I immediately felt very guilty and ashamed because I was actually not paying attention to what she was saying. I was actually kind of thinking about who else I needed to talk to. And I've probably done that to some of you, and you were just too polite to say anything. And I apologize. I'm working on it because, you know, once she said that, I kind of always felt guilty and just avoided her after that. I tend to be task-oriented, and God is working in me to make me more people-oriented. One of the people I admire with their people skills is Matt Wada. Matt is not only good at worship, he's good at people and relationships. And on more than one occasion, I walked up to Matt and started to tell him things that needed to be done, and he listens very carefully and nods, and then when I'm done, he says, good morning, Donna, how are you? <laughs> it always stops me in my tracks. It makes me remember, oh, see people, love people. So thanks, Matt, I think. <laughs> but in God's presence, we grow to love God, to love people, to not just be people with activity. We grow to be kind and compassionate from the heart, to not think so much about ourselves and what we need and what we want. We grow to have a heart for God, to hear his voice, to have a heart for his people, to set aside our busyness for the sake of others. In his presence, we are changed and convicted. We are challenged to grow in how we see people, how we treat people, our families, our friends, our coworkers, the people around us. How are you convicted and challenged in God's presence? In what comes to mind that needs to change for you? We want to be people who have a heart for God and people, not just people with activity and busyness. The central part of this story in Mark 11 is about the temple. And it reminds us that God is always making a way to be in our presence, for us to know him and to be changed by him. And Jesus was angry because the Jews squandered that opportunity. They were full of activity, with no heart for God, no heart for people. And it's a warning to us about getting busy and thinking about 
what we need to do and neglecting truly loving God and people and worshiping God. The second part of the story involves the fig tree. And the fig tree sets the scene for what Jesus does in the temple. Why did Jesus curse a fig tree? It does seem odd, right? It doesn't seem like something Jesus would do, even if he was really hungry. And that tells us that Jesus is making a point here, that he's doing something that he wants the disciples to notice. And there are some relevant background details we need to know to understand what's going on here. And one of them, first, is that fig trees were very abundant in Israel. They were very common, all over. And they're often mentioned in the Old Testament. Jesus, his disciples, and Mark's readers would have understood what Jesus was doing here. They knew all about fig trees, their seasons, their fruit, and their branches, and their leaves, everything about them. A second fact about fig trees is that they were symbols of Israel in scripture. And Israel's often represented by vineyards, vineyards, trees, and fig trees. We see this in the Old Testament references to Israel's lush vineyards and fig trees in blossom. Hosea 9.10 says, for example, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. The prophet Isaiah, or the prophet Habakkuk spoke about the sin and destruction of Israel. And this is a verse you might recognize. In Habakkuk 3.17, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And the fig tree here represents Israel. Hosea, in that earlier verse, mentioned early fruit. And this explains why Jesus expected fruit on the tree, even though it wasn't in season. Middle Eastern fig trees had fruit twice a year. They were in season with their biggest, luscious, juiciest fruit at the end of summer. But they also had early fruit in spring, which is when this was. The fruit began to grow before the leaves. So if a fig tree had leaves, you could expect that it would have fruit. And Jesus, his disciples, and Mark's readers would all have known this. This tree should have had fruit. Jesus saw it from a distance and saw its big, beautiful leaves. But it was barren. It had big, beautiful leaves, but no fruit. It had the appearance of fruit, but no actual fruit. It was all leaves and no fruit, just like Israel herself. And in cursing the fig tree, Jesus was pronouncing judgment on God's people. The fig tree was representative of Israel. It was nothing but leaves. And Israel had the appearance of religiosity, but no fruit of love for God and people. The fig tree was all leaves and no fruit. The temple was all activity and no heart, just like God's people. And both of these things reflected the broken condition of God's people Israel and their fruitless, heartless, empty activity for God. Jesus cursed the fig tree and condemned the temple. And the events of Mark 11 were written as a warning for Israel and for us. The barren fig tree and the empty temple point to the empty religious activity of Israel and also of us. Timothy Keller says, Jesus cleared the temple of all that fruitless activity. 
he would take the private object lesson of the fig tree and turn it into a necessary public spectacle. And Jesus is saying that he wants more than busyness. He wants the kind of character change that only comes from realizing that you have been ransomed. If you're an anxious or impatient person, is it clear to everybody around you that you were overcoming that? Do you have the power to, w to wait through Jesus' delays? If you're an angry or unforgiving person, have you clearly begun to conquer anger? Are you learning to absorb the cost of forgiveness? And if you're a fearful person, or a self-hating person, or a self-aggrandizing person, is it very clear to the people who know you best that your character is undergoing radical regeneration? Or are you just very busy with religious activity? Those are pretty convicting questions, aren't they? And right now I'm guessing that if you're at all self-aware, you might be feeling a little sad or guilty or defensive. Or you might be feeling pretty good because you see change in yourself and you feel proud or satisfied with where you are. But either way, just realize that we all need Jesus. We can't make that change happen by ourselves, but it will happen as we spend time with God, as we seek his presence. Change in spiritual growth are slow, incremental. They're lifelong processes, and we don't always notice that they're happening in us. But that kind of interchange of real heart and fruit for God, it's the long, slow work of the Spirit in us. We can't make it happen. It's not quick or automatic. But we can make space for God to work in us, for the Spirit to work in us. As we spend time in Scripture, in prayer, in worship, in small groups and community, in long conversations with spiritual people, in long walks with God, in listening to music and reflecting on it, in solitude, in journaling, in quiet times. In whatever way you allow the Spirit in and you spend time with God, that's how God produces change, how God grows a heart, produces fruit through you. It's the result of spending time with him. Not just going through the motions, but allowing the Spirit in to our thoughts and our desires and our lives. Our hearts are changed and fruit is produced when we seek the presence of God. That's where it happens. But we all struggle to seek God, right? We all struggle to make time and space for the presence of God in our lives. It's easier for many of us to do things, to be busy with activity. It's easier to do than to seek God, to seek his presence. Last month I told you that when I was four years old, I put a pine nut in my nose and couldn't get it out. And I hid behind a big chair, afraid of getting laughed at or getting yelled at. And after the service, a couple people asked me what happened next. And honestly, I don't remember that part. The only thing I remember I have a vivid picture of is hiding behind that big chair. I think that was pretty traumatic for me. But I assume that my dad got the pine nut out because he was a Mr. Fix-It kind of guy and because nobody ever talked about going to the hospital or the doctors or anything. For all my life, anytime anyone talked about pine nuts, 
my parents would bring up this story and everyone would laugh at me. And I would either walk out of the room or I would change the subject because it made me feel so bad. But no one ever said anything about going to the hospital and all those telling, so I'm pretty sure dad took care of it. But I hold this picture as a picture of my life before Jesus, hiding behind a big chair, afraid of doing something stupid and getting laughed at. And I spent a lot of time as a kid and as an adult hiding, trying to fit in, trying to be acceptable, trying to avoid looking stupid and hiding my mistakes, my opinions, my desires, my thoughts, hiding my real self so that I could fit in and not embarrass myself. I actually never talked about this whole pine nut story until several years ago when I began to understand what shame and hiding were. But I learned as a kid to get by in the world, by hiding who I really was, by doing good things, by looking good, by being a good girl. And focusing on appearance and activity were strategies I learned as a kid. And many of you learned as kids too. And we continue to do them as adults. We hide behind appearance about how we look. We hide behind activity and looking busy and hope people think well of us. And hiding behind appearance and activity are strategies that really began back in the Garden of Eden with sin. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they were ashamed and they hid from God. And God gave them fig leaves. Figs were there in the Garden of Eden to cover themselves up. And our desire to look good and to hide from people and from God behind activity and appearance is an awareness of our sin and brokenness and our desire to cover up and to make ourselves worthy, to look worthy, to pretend to be worthy, even though we might not feel worthy. But there's hope for all of us who hide behind appearance and activity. And that hope is Jesus. When Jesus cursed the fig tree and then it died, that was a warning to Israel. But it was also a prediction of the death of the temple and the temple sacrificial system and the need to hide. The temple itself would be destroyed 40 years later in 70 AD, never to be rebuilt again. And the temple sacrificial system would be destroyed a few days later when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. In a few days after this, Jesus would die on the cross, and the veil in the temple would be torn in two, the veil that separated a holy God from sinful people. The veil would be torn in two, and the separation from God, the flaming sword, the whole temple's sacrificial system, and the need to hide would all be destroyed with it. Just as the fig tree had withered down to its roots. And Jesus would take the sword for us and be the one final sacrifice once for all time so that we can come back into the garden, into the full and glorious presence of God and experience his love and grace. In Christ, we will never again need a temple, a building, a ritual. We will never again need to hide and cover up to be in his presence. When we believe in Jesus, we have unlimited access to the presence of God, anytime, anywhere. And you can turn to him right now, believe in him, and know that he is here with you. 
the glorious thing about the end of the temple system is that when we believe in Jesus, God's presence is available to us anytime, anywhere, whenever we want it. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Ephesians 2.19-22 says, You are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God, us. Each of us and us together, we are the dwelling place of God, not the building, not the place. Because of Jesus, we have unlimited access to the presence of God to be loved and blessed and changed and made fruitful and to grow a heart for God anytime we seek him. To make it very clear, just being here at church doesn't mean you're in the presence of God necessarily. It helps. It helps us to think about God. But God's presence is no longer just in a place. It's in us, in us, the people. It's in our faith, in our desire for him. It's in our invitation and our openness and our attitude of receiving from him. The Spirit is in us, and we experience his presence in our hearts and minds as we seek him, as we allow him in. Our hearts are changed and fruit is produced when we seek the presence of God. But even if you're really busy, and you don't really have time, and you feel guilty that you don't really seek the presence of God as much as you want to, even then, God is there. And he welcomes you every time you make the effort. Anytime you turn towards him, God always welcomes you. His response is never, where have you been? Why don't you come more often? Never. God's response to us is always, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I love you. I'm delighted in you. I'm so glad to be with you. Always, every time, God's response to us is a response of love. And God will change your heart and yield fruit in your life if you seek him in any of the ways that you spend time in his presence. If you seek him in scripture, in prayer, in community, in people, in quiet times, in journaling, in, in worship, in whatever ways you connect to God, God is there with you as you seek him. And maybe you're really busy and you haven't had time to connect with God, but you can do that right now. And as we close in prayer, and then as we sing a few worship songs, this is an opportunity for you to just really look to God, to ask him to be present with you, to ask him for his warmth and love and forgiveness and grace. And as we sing this first song, Touch of Heaven, you can just sit and listen. Make it your prayer. Pray the words of the song. Tell God what you need, what you want, how you want to grow. Ask him to help you. Be in his presence this morning. Let's pray.